<laughs> and thank you, I, I, I got it. I, I got it. Oh, it's good to see you tonight again. Uh, we're, we're getting to know a lot of good people with um, good stories, sometimes painful ones, but uh, it, it is truly good to be here. Our quote for the week, we're going through Revelation 14, is from Testimonies, Volume 8, page 27, the message of Revelation 14 is the message that we are to bear to the world. It is the bread of life for these last days. Yesterday, we went rather fast through uh, Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7. Uh, in a nutshell, the message is so important that it goes to the, the, the midst of heaven, to every nation, tongues, tribes, and people. Fear God and give glory to Him. In the Old Testament, it is the day of judgment. In Revelation 14, it is the hour of judgment because there's not much time left. And uh, the call is to recognize the Creator God. And somebody asked me, where is that quote on marriage? We talked about a Creator God, and He's also the re Creator God. He can recreate, wants to recreate your life. And I've found in over 20 years of ministry now, nine out of ten personal issues in church are relational issues. And so what I'm going to do after I pray, I'm going to be Uncle Ingo reading you a chapter from the book Mount of Blessing. Got it today at the ABC less than $2. <laughs> and um, I've also found in 20, 15 years of teaching that my students buy $50 textbooks. They might cram for a quiz, might make an A, forget everything they learned, and sell the textbook at the end of the semester. So about 10 years ago, I canceled those textbooks and now I use $2 textbooks. And the number one textbook I make students buy. Now, you might think that's kind of odd on an Adventist campus by a religion teacher and a pastor requiring this. But I, might make, I make my students buy a book called The Bible. <laughs> I get them from Seminars Unlimited for $6 and I sell them for $6. There's no excuse and they have to bring the Bible and we open the Bible, and I have them highlight things, and we turn the page and then read some more. That's what we do in religion class. And I do scholarly stuff too, you know, so-and-so says and all that, but they, they got to know the book. And then they need to be introduced to the spirit of prophecy, $2, you know. And uh, that's what we do. But I'm going to read to you a chapter on marriage because it's such a, such a painful and... and hard issue in people's lives. I asked the teenagers and the college students, how many of you want your marriage to be like your parents? Not too many hands go up. So in the, in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, there's a short little chapter on marriage, and it ties in with God being our recreator, the Ten Commandments. And 
So I'd like to kneel and pray and then read you this chapter and then we'll jump into the second angel's message, Babylon is fallen. I kneel because when I kneel, uh, I can't jump, I can't run, I'm, I'm defenseless, I'm weak, and that's when God can do something in my life. So let's pray together. Father, tonight, as we're starting, I pray for marriages, broken ones, healthy ones, joyous ones, and the ones where there are many tears, that you might heal and that you might recreate. Not just grand salvation, we thank you for that. Eternal life. But we ask for the gospel to be lived out here on earth, even before the second coming. I pay, pray that three angels' message is not just a, a motto of, an, of a church, a movement, some theological construct, but a living reality 24-7 in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In uh, marriage counseling, I'm not a counselor, but uh, it just comes to you nonstop, really. I used to uh, play Oprah and Dr. Phil. I tried to figure out men and women. And I worked on their communication and their finances and, uh, and in-laws and, 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 and all that. And it was always not quite satisfactory. I, I helped some couples, uh, some divorced. And um, then I stumbled upon in, in Scripture and praying and being frustrated with this situation on something. What I tried to do is deal with a, a male and a female and get them back together. Uh, I do that differently. Now, we still talk finances and communication and all that. But I, I don't try to get them back together. I'm not Oprah and I'm not Dr. Phil. I now try to get the male to God and the female to God. And in the process, they can't avoid but growing closer together. And I witnessed that one time. My wife and I had several couples over in our home. We were discussing a picnic for the church, especially couples. And a lady announced that to her husband sitting across from our kitchen table that they wouldn't be there. And the husband said, why not? And she said, because we're getting a divorce. That was the first time he heard that she said, you should get the paperwork on Monday. This is my, my, in my home planning a picnic. <laughs> well, I sent everybody home and I stayed with them in my parking lot till 11 p.m. I said, what's going on? And she, I'll never forget what she said. And then uh, this chapter will make a lot more sense. She said, um, there's no other guy and... We're having some money trouble, but uh, the real issue is the fizz is gone. The fizz is gone. <laughs> you ever been in love? You know that feeling? She said, that's gone. I said, okay. Then I worked with them. They're still married today. I worked with them through Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. She said, the fizz 
is gone. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, by, this is all free of charge. Paul in First Corinthians 13, verse 8 says, love never fails. Well, the failure rate is 30 to 50 percent in the Western world. And I read this, love never fails. And then it, I, I don't know when it struck me, but I shared this with this couple of Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Something very interesting. She said, the fizz in my heart is gone. Listen to this. This comes from Jesus himself. Written to the Ephesians, Revelation 2, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. She said, the fizz is gone. Jesus says, no, you left the fizz. Do you know what the good news behind that is? If you left the fizz, you can walk back to it. And God's grace wants to enable that. Let me read you the chapter. It's Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. They have it in the trailer. Um, less than $2. Mention my name. Get another 10% off. <laughs> now, not in California. Maybe in Keene. Maybe. But they probably just laugh just like you did. <laughs> but tremendous book on, on life advice. Um, I, I don't know your life story, but... Uh, Mount of Blessing, page 63. Three Angels' message is not just a theory. This is put into practice in your life. Mount of Blessing, page 63. Among the Jews, a man was permitted to put away his wife for the most trivial offenses. Like, for example, if she burned supper, some Jewish scholars said, I mean, if she can't get dinner right, come on. You can now upgrade to a younger model. That's what they said. And Jesus had to counter that. And the woman was then at liberty to marry again. This practice led to great wretchedness and sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared plainly that there could be no dissolution of the marriage tie except for unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. I believe that. But it makes it hard to pastor. Because you're dealing with the entire spectrum of human experience. You know, um... I follow this, but uh, it is difficult in, in life. Everyone, he said, that puts away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, makes her an adulteress. Whoever shall marry her when she's put away commits adultery. When the Pharisees afterward questioned him concerning the lawfulness of divorce, Jesus pointed his hearers back to the marriage institution as ordained at creation. You remember yesterday? If creation is not real... The entire marriage counseling by Jesus falling apart. We have to have Genesis correct. So he points them back to creation because of hardness of your hearts. He said, Moses suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I mean, do you hear the harshness of the heart? Put away your wife. Let's just put her away. (laughs) Behind the tent. What does putting away mean? He referred to them to the blessed days of Eden. He, he keeps going back to creation. That's why we need creation and Genesis. No compromise. When God pronounced all things very good, then marriage and the Sabbath, that's the quote I mentioned last night, had their origin twin institutions for the glory of God 
in the benefit of humanity. That means the purpose of marriage is not just between a male and a female loving each other. You can be an atheist and do that. And my dog can think that too when another dog walks by. That's not enough. God is saying the purpose of marriage is a mirror reflection of God's love expressed through a human couple to the world. The purpose is theological. That telemarketer, you can ignore that. Then as the Creator joined the hands of the holy pair in wedlock, saying, A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, the two shall be one. He enunciated the law of marriage for all the children of Adam to the close of time. Is that relevant or what? He described marriage from the Garden of Eden all the way to the close of time, being redefined right now in our society. That which the Eternal Father himself had pronounced good was the law of the highest blessing and development for man. Like every other one of God's good gifts entrusted to the keeping of humanity, marriage has been perverted by sin. But it is the purpose of the gospel to restore its purity and beauty. I have couples that I send to marriage counselors. Unfortunately, there are very few that know these concepts and have a Christian base. But it is the gospel, the grace of God, that re restores relationship. It is the purpose of the gospel to restore its purity and beauty. In both the Old and New Testament, the marriage relation is employed to represent a tender and sacred union that exists between Christ and his people. No wonder Satan wants to attack that. The redeemed ones whom he purchased at the cost of Calvary. Fear not, he says, the maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. I'm going to skip down to the next section where Paul talks about this. Therefore, he says, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And I've had guys in my office saying, we went to my in-laws last Thanksgiving. This Thanksgiving, we're going to my parents' house. And I'm the man in the family, pastor. Isn't that what the Bible says? And I say, no. <laughs> now, it is what the Bible says, the man in the family. you know. But uh, the next line then in Ephesians 5 is, it is the submission of a woman, not to a male, but to a man who reflects the sacrifice of Jesus in his family. That's the submission too. It's not female to male. It is Christian female to Christ-like male. Then only can we talk about submission. So I tell him, buddy, you're going back to your in-laws because with that attitude, your parents don't need... Anyway. Um, <laughs> husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Purpose, the, the male is then responsible to, to reintroduce the female that was a gift from God to begin with back to Jesus at the second coming. That's marriage, mercy, yeah. <laughs> Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So a healthy message, uh, marriage is even better than oil of Olay. <laughs> but that it should be holy without blemish. So he ought to love his wife. 
Now listen to this. Okay, this is counseling. I've sent couples to counselors. They charge $95 for 50 minutes, $225 for 15 minutes if a psychiatrist is involved and prescribes medication. 225 in 15 minutes. Now listen to this. This is free. Well, $1.96. But it's even less than that because I paid for the little girl's candy next to me. So I don't actually know how much this is, but it's, it's worth it. The grace of Christ and this alone can make this institution what God designed it should be, an agent for the blessing and uplifting of humanity. And thus the families of the earth in their unity and peace and love may represent the family of heaven. Last paragraph. Now is in Christ's day. My sermon is short. I'm, I'm not worried. <laughs> and it's still daylight. That's page 65. Now is in Christ's day. The condition of society represents a sad comment upon heaven's ideal of this sacred relation. Yet even for those who have found bitterness and disappointment where they had hoped for companionship and joy, the gospel of Christ offers a solace. The patience and gentleness which his spirit can impart will sweeten the bitter lot. The heart in which Christ dwells will be so filled, passive. That's, that's, love is given not by willpower, but as a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 13, love is a, a gift. It is not produced by us. It comes from God. The heart in which Christ dwells will be so filled, so satisfied with his love, not ours, that it will not be consumed with longing to attract sympathy and attention to itself. Through the surrender of the soul to God, his wisdom can accomplish what human wisdom fails to do. Through the revelation of his grace, hearts that were once indifferent or estranged may be united in bonds that are firmer and more enduring than those of earth the golden bonds of a love that will bear the test of trial. And um, if you don't know about this stuff and you are spending a lot of money on counseling, I have several of these in my office in Texas. I really don't need another one, even though it's a good book. <laughs> so if after the sermon you want to sneak up here and take it from the bear without anybody noticing... We won't call it theft. We'll call it a gift from me to you. I know somebody will need it tonight. Now, now the sermon. Now this. I, I struggled with the title. If you're new here, that this is new stuff here that I'm working on, studying in my kitchen, in my lab. Um, and I've have I have several titles for this. One is. Grapes of wrath, dwelling while intoxicated. That's one. Then I came up with another title, Alcohol Hell. <laughs> and then I'm walking along the beach today. As a good Adventist, I went to Pope Beach. Now, I, I kept an eye on 25 teenagers. That's really what I was doing. But, uh, and I'm walking along, minding my own business, thinking about the sermon, actually. 
and I'm overhearing what we in Texas would call the game warden, beach patrol guys in uniform. They're talking about tourists. And I heard the older guy telling the younger guy, yeah, quote, they drink and turn stupid. <laughs> and I thought, there's my third sermon title. <laughs> they drink and turn stupid. I, I'm not sure in my church pulpit, pulpit I would use number three, but in a tent, <laughs> they, they drink and they turn stupid. I've spent a lot of time studying Revelation, and I, I've come up with, um, I, I don't have all the answers, you know, the seven thunders and the trumpets and, and all that. And, but I noticed something. There are symbols in the book of Revelation. And those symbols are usually described in a reality language, like wine, second angel's message, Babylon has fallen. And then it says in Revelation 14, verse 8, there's a symbol that exists in reality, but the symbol, I discovered, has a very specific function. Let me read it to you. We are in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, what Adventists call the second angel's message. And somebody asked me tonight my testimony, how I became Adventist as a secular, postmodern, neo-pagan, Greenpeace-belonging teenager in Germany, I will share tomorrow, along with Daniel and Revelation. But listen to Revelation 14, verse 8. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 24 words in Greek, one sentence, that's it. Very short, uh, spicy message in one sentence. Now, Babylon is in Iraq, and I do not think that city Babylon right now is handing out real wine to people, to all the nations, and they drink and they walk around drunk. I don't think that's what verse 8 is saying. So what we have is, does wine exist? Yes. Um, but the wine stands for something else. So what I'm working through in studying Revelation afresh again is, why is it using that symbol? What does the reality describe? And then what is the function of that symbol? You're following all that? So what I want to do tonight is three things. I want to explore with you wine. What is wine? How is it described in Scripture? What is the meaning of that wine? And how does that affect ourselves on this August day in the year 2015? So we need to jump right on in. Um, I'm, the Lord blessed me tremendously. He's kept me growing up non-Adventist in Germany from a lot of what the game warden said, stupid. Okay. I never liked alcohol. I've tasted wine once, maybe. I thought it tasted nasty, really. And beer, really, if you're honest, to me, tastes and smells like um, basketball players sweat after a two-hour game. <laughs> I mean, this, 
if you have to develop a taste for it, it's, it's not good. Um, so I, I, I never drank, never been drunk in my life. I, I don't have a, a heart-stirring testimony here how I got out of the gutter and from one day to another I quit drinking. I, I never drank. Um, that's right, amen. Right? There was plenty available at home in my, my parents' cellar. Anything you wanted, right there. Never tempted for some reason. I know it's a struggle for others. Then I was in Moscow in May of 1985. That is right when Gorbachev became president of back then still the USSR, the Soviet Union. And I noticed, you know, we took field trips to, to Russia during the Cold War. I'll tell you more tomorrow. And I noticed trucks hauling men out of town. And I asked a local, what, what is all that about? And they said, Gorbachev doesn't want the drunks in the city. So they put them in trucks, take them out of town, and then they have to find their way back. <laughs> he also cut out the sale of sugar, and alcohol was not to be sold until 10 a.m., and if you watched heavy machinery in Moscow back then, you nine out of ten times saw a woman operating the machinery because by 10 a.m. the men were already too drunk. So I saw that. I, I've, I've seen people drunk. Um, then I volunteered in a hospital. We had a doctor in my church in Germany, and he, he let me be in the internal ward, watch everything. I saw ulcers and, and ultrasounds and and all that. Uh, it's still daylight, so real quick. Lady came in, severe stomach, tummy ache. They did, um, they looked at her stomach, they, they checked everything, couldn't find anything, send her home. She came back three times. I jokingly told the doctor she's probably pregnant. He stopped in his tracks. <laughs> he got out his voice thing and he said, um, Nurse so-and-so, can you run a, what you would call an EPT on patient number 14678Z? She was pregnant. <laughs> now, why she had a severe stomach ache, they had to follow up on that. But anyway, I was in that hospital, and that doctor called me. I was just roaming the hospital, anything interesting. But the nurses also discovered that they could call me for GI incidents to clean up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> took advantage of me. But uh, the doctor called me and said, come quickly to room number two. I want to show you something. There was a man lying on a table like this, belly undressed, and he said, push on his belly. I was like, okay. <laughs> there were little red veins coming out from red dots. He said, do it again and watch closely. And they would disappear, and then they would come back. Any nurses in here? You know what that is? That's the liver shutting down. In German, we call that spider navy. That's a sign that the liver can no longer process the alcohol content. And um, the reason he was in the hospital was he's a, he was a funeral director. And during a funeral, he was drunk, he dropped the casket 
into the hole diagonally. He was one of the guys holding the, the ropes, takes six guys or more. I had one funeral, 440 pounds, took 10 guys. But he let go of his rope and the casket fell. Okay? I learned in ministry, you don't want to mess things up in two situations, funerals and weddings. <laughs> and the police, during the funeral, picked him up and brought him to our hospital. The doctor said this is not his first time here. And, and we watched him and dealt with his liver and detox and all that. So I've, I've watched what alcohol does, and um, I want to invite you to a brief Bible study. We need to read what wine is according to Scripture, and then the symbol and its function will make a lot more sense in just a few minutes. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. God already destroyed the earth. The world is getting a second chance, and Noah messes up a second chance. You ever done that in your life? I'm going to tell you something on Saturday night where I uh, repeated the same mistake three times, and now my wife hesitates to let me travel by myself without a passport. But you got to wait till Saturday night for that. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. You know where that is going. The earth is receiving a second chance. In fact, the language is just like the language of creation. Verse 21, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Lust and liquor are a toxic combination. And so Noah messes up a second chance to humanity through alcohol. Go to Genesis 19, verse 32. We got to get a clear picture of wine. Genesis 19, verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine. And we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. That is called incest. We've only had two texts. Going to develop a trend here. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 9. This is specifically written to priests. But it's very interesting. When priests approached the sanctuary. They were not allowed to drink. And I believe, Three Angels' message, since 1844, we are a royal priesthood before a heavenly sanctuary, and we have a case for zero tolerance. I have a lot of Adventists and ex-Adventists tell me the Bible does not say 100% abstinence. That is not true. There are cases in Scripture where wine seems to be okay, but there are also texts that say absolutely not zero tolerance. Okay. Here's one of them. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting. Book of Hebrews, we approach the throne of grace boldly. When you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Death 
penalty if you are dwelling while intoxicated. And death penalty, when I read it in the Old Testament, it's not a mean God saying, let me see if you're going to sin. Let me. Oh, you did it. One strike and you're out. Mean God. No, death penalty means God wants to protect something very valuable. It's a loving God who instituted the death penalty, not a mean God. He says, this is so serious, don't touch. Okay? Lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Uh, Ellen White commented, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 361, Nadab and Abihu would never have committed that fatal sin had they not first become partially intoxicated by the free use of wine. They understood that the most careful, solemn preparation was necessary before presenting themselves in the sanctuary, where the divine presence was manifested. But by intemperance, they were disqualified for their holy office. Their minds became confused and their moral perceptions dulled so that they could not discern the difference between the sacred and the common. Then we have the famous text in uh, Proverbs chapter 23. Some of you know these texts, but it's good to review truth. Proverbs 23, verse 25 to 30. Where are you going with this? I'm going from wine to a spiritual meaning used in the second angel's message. Well, we've got to get the reality first. Proverbs 23, verse 25. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. Then comes the series of questions. Okay, right from adultery, he goes to alcohol. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of a mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At last, it bites like a serpent, and stings like a viper that comes out of the curse. Genesis. Ellen White Commons, Ministry of Healing, 331. No argument is needed to show the evil effects of intoxicants on the drunkard, the bleared. Don't even know what that means. There must be something bad. The bleared, besotted wrecks of humanity, souls for whom Christ died, over whom angels weep are everywhere. They are blot on our boasted civilization. They are the shame and curse and peril of every land. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. We're getting closer. Isaiah 5, 11. Bible study tonight. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until night till wine inflames them. I'm on purpose reading wine, not liquor, whiskey, vodka, or anything else. Wine. Isaiah 28, verse 7. Isaiah 28, verse 7. Forget, don't drink and drive. Don't drink and dwell. For my friend Rafael, para tomar solamente agua. Tequila, Corona, no. 
That's eight of the Spanish, of the 30 Spanish words I know. Isaiah 28, verse 7, But they also have air through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of their way. The priest and the prophet have aired through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth, though no place is clean. Pretty graphic language. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 7. I put an exclamation mark in my notes. <laughs> Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Why? Context, what city? Jeremiah 51. Babylon. That's right. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. Critical statement to understand wine in the second angel's message. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk, that nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon has suddenly fallen, been destroyed, wail for her, take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. The sarcasm is she will not be. Just a few more lamentations. I'm going in order for you. Easy to find. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 12. And you're thinking, well, what about Paul and Timothy and wine is good for your stomach? And what about the wedding at Canaan? I'm going to cover all that. Lamentations 2, verse 12. To say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out into their mother's bosom. Wine makes you wobble. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink. Be exposed as uncircumcised. That is sarcastic language. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you in utter shame will be on your glory. Do you know how Mar uh, John the Baptist died? Herod had a birthday party. And again, the, the deadly combination, and, and men, you can't blame the women, what they wore, what, what she looked like. They drank, Salome danced, Ellen White, Desire of Ages, calls it that she, she was in the first flush of womanhood. And now you got drunk men watching that, and it cost John the Baptist his head. I, I could give you more, more texts. Um, ironically, Jesus tells the disciples that the cup that you're going to drink is the cup of death. The symbolism of, of drinking is used for the cross. I could give you more text, but uh, what I'm gathering from all this, alcohol kills. Uh, New Testament, we won't look them up. I'm just going to tell you about them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8 says you need to be sober. So does 1 Peter 1, 13, 4, verse 7, 5, verse 8, 1 Timothy 3, 2, criteria for elders. Verse 11, 2 Timothy 4, 5, Titus 1, verse 7 through 8, chapter 2, verse 2, etc., etc., etc. So what about the wedding at Cana? Did Jesus create alcohol? No. How do you know? I, I've read Bakioki's book, 300 pages. 
I want to show you something in the text. John chapter 2. No historical background, Middle Eastern context. Just reading the text, I want you to think about something. John chapter 2, verse 1. On what day does the wedding take place? Third day. Sometime retrace in the Gospel of John what was the second day and what was the first day. It's hard to do. What happens in the Gospel of John later on on a third day? And I don't want to over-spiritualize and allegorize Scripture. I'm just throwing it out as a possibility here. What else happens on a third day? The resurrection. Now, it's not an airtight case, but think about this. He has water. He turns it into, quote, wine, whatever that means. And then the, the master of the banquet says, normally what is done is this, but this wedding is different. Then comes something that I think is the key to Revelation. Verse 11. This beginning of signs. That means the wedding was a sign. You have a reality wine, and the wine stands for something. It is a sign or a symbol. A symbol of what? What do you think looks blood red? Wine. The wedding takes place on the third day. Jesus uses the wedding as an illustration of the cross, I think, and the Resurrection on the third day. And at that point, the disciples, according to John chapter 2, 11 and 12, they put their faith into Jesus. So what a kind of blood did Jesus spill for us? Very specific blood. He symbolized the Passover lamb. And when they left Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, no fermentation was allowed during Passover. The Jews to this day, they will hide yeast in their rooms, and then the kids have to find it. They take the yeast, it's a symbol of sin, they take it out of the house, they burn it, and then they dance around it and celebrate that they got rid of sin. If Jesus is symbolizing Passover blood during that wedding, on the third day, there's no chance theologically that wine can be fermented. Do you follow all that? By the way, the word wine in both Hebrew, yayin, and Greek, oinos, can mean fermented or unfermented grape juice. So just because it says wine doesn't mean it's alcohol. Uh, I always have people quote to me Deuteronomy 14.26, give wine with your tithe. Uh, Proverbs 31 verse 6 mentions, give the discouraged person wine. We cannot assume by default that that means just give them alcohol, it'll make them happy. Okay? The word itself is neutral, only context can decide that. Let me give you one more, and we need to jump into this second angel's message. What about this advice by Paul to Timothy that a little wine is good for your stomach? 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. A lot of people quote that to me. 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent illnesses or infirmities. There it is. 
Paul said it's okay to drink wine. What do you think? It's what he says. By the way, I just misquoted scripture. Let me say it again the wrong way and you catch what I'm doing wrong. Paul is saying, Timothy, you can drink some wine. What does Paul actually say? Drink no longer, no longer just water. What's the next verb? But use a little wine. He doesn't say drink wine. Now let's play this through. Two possibilities. What if Paul actually meant alcohol? Paul would be saying take uh, some drops of alcohol. He's not saying drink wine. He says use wine. Put it in the water. It'll kill the bugs. Like survivalists have their micro carbon filters and all that. We actually have hardcore archaeological evidence that he is talking about grape juice. In the year 8079, Pliny the Younger, there was a Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger wrote a natural history and a medicine book. I have the reference right here. And Pliny the Younger said, natural history, paragraph 23, 22 to 23, he says, for medicinal purposes, the wine to use is the unfermented grape juice of the vine. Direct quote, 8070 is just about the same time that Paul is writing to Timothy. That means we have a source outside the Bible that confirms the wine used for your stomach is grape juice, not alcohol. So, having said all that, let me close the Bible and tell you something. I have friends in cemeteries that got hit by drunk drivers. If you as an Adventist want to make the case for drinking alcohol, including in the privacy of your own home, and you never get drunk, you have to answer to every mother, every husband, every son, every daughter, uncle, friend, who's now dead in the cemetery. And you also have to defend this before God after these texts. You also have to make the case to me that you just ruined your entire witness to the entire one billion counted Muslim world. If you drink, watch bad movies, etc., your witness to Islam is gone. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, we have one shot at Muslims to reach them with the gospel. Why? We practice foot washing, so do they. We have a prophet, a modern prophet, so do they. Some of them know about 1844, Baha'i religion. They know about a thing called a bat, translated, that is an open door in heaven since 1844. God implanted a little inside in another culture that day of atonement. Muslims don't drink, we don't drink either. Muslims don't watch bad movies. Oh, sorry. We don't either, do we? And if you can look into a Muslim eye and say, I don't drink at all, the door is open for your witness. So that's the responsibility. Now, why does the second angel's message then use wine? It is very interesting to me that Revelation 14 verse 8 does not use the word liquor does not use the word vodka, does not use the word whiskey, 
booze or anything like that. It uses the word wine. What is wine? Can you tell me? Well, what is wine? Fermented grape juice. By the way, we don't, we don't recommend liquor to people because it's 70% water. You know, a little wine is good for your heart. It has nothing to do with the alcohol, by the way. And the, I heard the study was funded by the liquor industry. <laughs> liquor is 70% water, which is good for you, but the other 30% ruins it. What is wine? Fermented grape juice. Now, the second angel's message is saying Babylon is fallen is fallen. Location, location, location. Do you remember that? What is the location of the first angel's message? Where does that take place? It's not Mount Zion, but the angel is flying where? In the midst of heaven. Where's Babylon? Fallen, fallen, crashed. So the contrast is, is extreme. We got, we got the angel flying in the midst of heaven as high as you can so the whole world can see the angel. And you got Babylon crashed to the ground. Notice something else. The message of the first angel is to whom? That took me a while. The, the who, whom thing in English? To whom? Every verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel preached to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Take a look at verse 8. Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You got alcohol and lust, again, in a combo, deadly toxic combo. So let me explain this. First angel's message, sky high. Second angel's message, as low as you can go. First angel's message to all nations. Second angel's message, who all is drunk? All nations. Do you see a connection between first and second angel's message? Now it gets complex. Think, frontal lobe. The content of the first angel's message deals with which commandment? I showed you that on the screen yesterday. The fourth commandment. He who made heaven and earth and the springs of water. Fourth commandment. God the creator. Would it not make sense then. Then the contrast between first and second angel. Is between location. All nations. And. The commandments. Wine used to be a good thing. But it got corrupted. And is now fermented. And now it kills. So what is this second angel's message? My theory is that this wine is a false theological doctrine that kills people. Now think about this for a second. First angel's message is about a true doctrine and calling people back to Sabbath keeping. If first and second angels are contrasted by location, combined by an appeal to all nations... Wouldn't it make sense that the wine is then in direct relation to the Sabbath commandment? A am I making things up or is that reasonable? First angel, Sabbath call. Second angel, something good is now corrupted and changed from original Sabbath to something else. Did I make that up? 
Now I got a little evidence here, and uh, before I read you that, I got a few quotes, and then I got to personalize this, and it's getting dark. That's my sign. Preach on. I became a Seventh-day Adventist in 1986. I didn't know even about tithing. I could not have explained 1844. But I noticed something in those 30 years that the Seventh-day Adventist church has changed. And I call this process uh, the de-adventization of Adventism. And the way that shows up, especially in the pulpit, is a message that is reduced to a very small Jesus, and it's called, as long as you have a relationship with Jesus, you're okay, forget everything else. If you had to choose, let me try this on you, if you had to choose between doctrine and Jesus, which one would you pick? Well, the natural answer is Jesus. Guess what? Jesus comes with doctrine. If we divorce the two, we got a divorce. And that's something to be avoided. And I've noticed our message now is you need to have a relationship with Jesus, undefined, some nebulous, just feeling that you're okay with God, you know, Jesus loves genes, that kind of stuff. But the entire doctrinal package is tossed out. I had a student in my class, Christian Beliefs, I spent an hour on the screen explaining 1844. Went through our entire school system. She's 20 now. After an hour of 1844, she came up to me after class and said, I have never heard about this date before. 12 years of Adventist education. And uh, what I'm noticing is we are selling as preachers that doctrine is stuffy, dusty, and cold. And what you need is Jesus. And once you have Jesus, maybe later on you'll find doctrine too. And guess what? It doesn't work that way. I see my young people leaving the church because why stay if you no longer have a fingerprint and a signature? We have de-doctrinized the Seventh-day Adventist church. Uriah Smith had a list of 10 points what this wine is. And I studied this myself without looking at any sources and came up with this theory. This wine has to be something good that turned bad. That's what wine is. Uriah Smith said the wine is immaculate conception, mass transubstantiation where the priest says this is the body of Christ and then we eat it. Confession to a human priest instead of Jesus. Tradition versus the Bible. Number five, a false Sabbath. Number six, immortality of the soul. Number seven, saints. Number eight, infant baptism. Number nine, second coming only spiritual but not real. I was at the Lutheran Church Congress in Berlin, Germany, 1988. And a famous theologian stood in front of several thousand people. And I heard it with my own ears, not off the internet. He said, the apocalyptic age is over. Jesus will never come back. <laughs> and finally, a peaceful millennium on earth. Let me read you some quotes from Ellen White, what this wine is. And um, we say doctrine is not all that important as long as you have a relationship with Jesus. What the text is telling me is you, if you are not 
correctly indoctrinated in Scripture, you are dwelling while intoxicated, and it is deadly. Okay. Second selected message is 68. So the symbolism of wine is for a purpose, saying you've got to be in Scripture and get your theology straight, or... The wine of Babylon, quote, is the exalting of the false spurious Sabbath above the Sabbath, which the Lord Jehovah has blessed, sanctified for the use of man, also the immortality of the soul. These kindred heresies and the rejection of the truth convert the church into Babylon. Kings, merchants, rulers, religious teachers are all in corrupt harmony. I'll share you in, with you in five minutes how that works in real life. Witnessed it myself. Great Controversy 388. This cup of intoxication which she presents to the world represents the false doctrines that she has accepted as the result of her unlawful connection with the great ones of the earth. Friendship with the world corrupts her faith, and in her turn she exerts a corrupting influence upon the world by teaching doctrines which are opposed to the plainest statements of Holy Writ. I come from a city that makes Mercedes and Porsche, 600,000 people, Stuttgart, Germany. The ratio of Adventists to non-Adventists in the United States is 1 to 300. Jamaica is 1 to 70, Bangladesh 1 to 10,000, Germany is 1 to 3,000. In a city of 600,000 people, we have three or four churches, the big one is 300 people sitting here tonight. 600,000 people. And only 300 recognize a, a glimpse of what we call truth. That is intoxication. And, uh, and my rental car in Germany, we, we went to camp meeting just a couple of months ago. Didn't, AC didn't work. And from Texas, we got to have AC even in Germany. <laughs> I had to take it back. They were all closed. Finally found an office still open. And I'm driving through Stuttgart, Germany, heavy traffic, apartment complexes, and I think, why don't they get this? Thousands of people, no idea of second coming or Sabbath. Breaks my heart. Listen to just a couple more statements here. Great Controversy 389, were it not that the world is hopelessly intoxicated with the wine of Babylon, multitudes would be convicted and converted by the plain Cutting truths of the Word of God. Let me tell you, I didn't grow up Adventist. This was cutting truth. Right? That's, it hurts. The theory of eternal torment is one of the false doctrines that constitute the wine of the abomination of Babylon, of which she makes all nations drink. If we turn from the testimony of God's Word and accept false doctrines because our fathers taught them, we fall under the condemnation pronounced upon Babylon, we are drinking of the wine of her abomination. According to Ellen White, correct doctrine is so important that if you don't have it, you are drunk. You are drunk. We have, in the last generation, killed the youth with pizza and gym night. And I'm so blessed in my church. We have a lady who does Sabbath school with the Bible and my teenage boys and 25 other teenagers in a church of 100 members. 25% are teenagers. And they study the Bible for Sabbath school. Can you believe that? Wow. <laughs> That's, yeah. We've said you can have God, but...
but you don't need truth. You can have relationship without details. I tell my wife after 20 years of marriage, now what was your name again? <laughs> oh, you don't like chocolate-covered strawberries? Well, eat them anyways. Relationships have to have doctrine too. You better remember the birthday, the anniversary, what her name was, you know? <laughs> the fallen denominational churches are Babylon. Babylon has been fostering poisonous doctrines, the wine of error. This wine of error is made, as Evangelism 365, is made up of false doctrines such as the natural immortality of the soul, the eternal torment of the wicked, the denial of the pre-existence of Christ prior to his birth in Bethlehem, advocating exalting the first day of the week above God's holy sanctified day. These and kindred errors are presented to the world by various churches. Manuscript 24, 1891 the so-called Christian world is to be the theater of great decisive actions. Men in authority will enact laws controlling the conscience after the example of the papacy. Babylon will make all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Every nation will be involved. Last quote. God has a controversy with the churches of today. They are fulfilling the prophecy of John. They've divorced themselves from God by refusing to receive his sign. I went eight years to a Baptist seminary to get my PhD. And um, my key text in my conversion, I'll tell you tomorrow, was 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I took a seminar on the Apostle Paul. Little Ingo at Bix Baptist Seminary. And they passed out the research papers to write 50 pages, single space, 300 footnotes, five pages of bibliography. And one option was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Fool me, I raised my hand and I said, I'll take that one. It's the state of the dead. I researched and I quoted and I, and I looked at their library and I, I translated from Greek and I structured the passage and you have to pre uh, give your paper to all the participants and the professor ahead of time, one week ahead of time. They read it. You come back. The next week, you present it for one hour, and then they ask questions. So I wrote a paper on the state of the dead, and um, I demonstrated over 50 pages something really profound. It woke up the Baptists from the dead because I said in plain English, translated from Greek and Hebrew, that my theory from Scripture is, without quoting Ellen White, that when you are dead, you are dead. <laughs> X equals Y. And I presented that for an hour. Then came question and answer, and they grilled me. They like barbecue. <laughs> Thief on the cross, Philippians 1, the souls under the altar, the I mean, all the texts in evangelism, everything, one after another, one after another. For two hours. Then another two hours. The resurrection, what happens when you die and all that. Thief on the cross. I explained the comma and all that. The students got frustrated. It got late, just like it right now. <laughs> and they turned towards their professor. Now, I'm presenting Bible truth. Every tennis ball they toss at me, I toss back at them with more scripture. 
They got frustrated. They turned towards their professor and said, Professor so-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, famous professor, big name in the scholarly world. Heaven forbid you're driving home tonight, you get hit by a car and you die. Where will you be? Location, location, location. <laughs> They're asking him, not me. I'll never forget the professor's response. And I trust he will be in heaven. I'm not putting him in Babylon. But I just want to show you, you present the truth as clear as you can over hours. The professor's response was, you have a car accident, you get hit, you die, where will you be? He said, well, something will happen. I would not tell him that in his face, but that is intoxication. In the face of hardcore evidence that when you die, you're dead, well, something will happen. At 10 p.m. that night, I won't keep you that long. At 10 p.m. that night, got a phone call from one of my peers, Baptist student, working on a doctorate. He said, Ingo, I... I cannot believe like you do, but I don't know what the truth is, and I hate to find out. <laughs> he went to a Bakayoki seminar on the Sabbath, and he came to me and said, the Sabbath makes biblically sense, but I can't keep it, because on Sabbath, I go grocery shopping and I clean my car. That is what Scripture says is intoxication. When you have the truth, but you can't grasp it. I listened to a radio preacher. I'm, I'm coming to a conclusion here. I listened to a radio preacher, and he was preaching about why do you not have to be afraid of death. And it was a good sermon. I could say amen to a lot of stuff. Tony Evans, Urban Alternative, he's on the radio. And he was preaching, the music was coming in, and then he answered the question, he said, the reason you don't have to be afraid of death because there is no death. Somebody else said that in Genesis. That is intoxication. So my question to you tonight, are you in a false relationship? Are you dwelling while intoxicated? Are you fooling yourself? Are you drunk? Are you spiritually sober? Let me conclude with a case study. won't take long. Pilate. Pilate has a chance to stand face to face with Jesus. And I, I won't take the time tonight uh, to go through it. It's in, in John chapter 18 and 19. You can retrace it. In, it is in Scripture. And Pilate is in his palace. He comes out to meet the Jews. He talks to the Jews. He goes back in. This is going to be a Texas two-step. He's either drunk or dancing. He goes back to Jesus. He, he asks all the right questions. Are you the king of the Jews? What is truth? What have you done? He goes back out to the Jews in public. He does that thing eight times, I counted, this afternoon. John chapter 18, verse 19. He goes in and he goes out. And he lets the crowd decide what to do with Jesus instead of deciding himself. Indecision 
when you're drunk and you can't think, indecision in your life will lead to the wrong decision. And in the Bible, eight strikes and Pilate is out. Location, location, location. When, on the other hand, John chapter 15 says, I am, you know the rest of the verse? I am the true vine with a V, and my father is the vine dresser. That's the true vineyard. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Painful process I've discovered in life. That it may bear more fruit. So if you're going through a hard time, God bless you. God wants to produce more fruit in your life. In Germany, we have Oktoberfest, and then I'll pray. I never went, really. Well, with my uncle in Munich, we went. There are four lines in Germany. They can hold five, six, one-liter beer jugs in one hand, and the same in the other. In the Oktoberfest, ten, ten times this size, the Germans sit there and drink. They drink beer. Sometimes a whole gallon. So much that at the Oktoberfest in Munich, they have a detox tent. It's too expensive to haul them all to the hospital, you know. They have a tent like this just for detox. I'm going to ask you something, and then I'll pray for you. No song tonight, just a prayer. You might have been Adventist for a long time, or you might be brand new. You might be Lutheran, Catholic, or Baptist, and I was hard on you, but I was one of you. I'll share with you that tomorrow. I got to ask you something. Be real honest with yourself. With your Bible study, who you're listening to, your prayer life, your thinking, your preparation for the second coming, do you need time in God's detox tent. He does not want you dwelling while intoxicated. Let me pray for you. Father, it is a hard message that a false thinking, a false theology, a fooling of self, is not just about different opinions on Bible translations and women's ordination and the nature of Christ, but a false thinking in the fundamentals of Bible doctrine is a form of deadly intoxication, as we have read and studied tonight. And so tonight we want to, if necessary, put ourselves into your detox Lord, and ask that we can sober up, that before it's too late, we can restore clear biblical thinking and study in our lives. Let us not stumble into our grave. Help us to walk straight. I want to pray for people here. Nobody knows. Good Adventists on the surface. But a real physical wine drinking problem, I pray that you break the habit tonight. 
physically and spiritually. And in its place, Lord, we ask that you might grant us the water of life in this tent before we leave. Lord, we cannot continue zipping on sin juice and expect to drink the water of life you have to offer. Clean us up. Sober the drunk. And let us walk straight towards New Jerusalem. Father, thank you for this cleansing, healing, reinstating in life. In Jesus' name, amen.